Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In part one on DOAC's use and misuse, we talked about how DOACs work, their efficacy and safety compared to warfarin, how to dose them, and when to avoid them. We also covered isolated calf DVT, superficial vein thrombosis, and anticoagulation in AFib. In this part two, DOACs and bleeding, we're going to go through a few cases showing the range of risk of badness in patients bleeding on DOACs. We see this all the time. So from minor risk like epistaxis, where local control is easy to access, to moderate risk like a stable GI bleeder, to major risk, bleeding into a closed fixed space like ICH. In each of these cases, we'll discuss how to weigh the risks and benefits of stopping the DOAC, when reversal of the DOAC is advised, and how best to accomplish the reversal. We'll have an EBM bottom line on the evidence for the newest reversal agent, and we'll discuss when we should and should not stop DOACs for different procedures. Now, before we jump into the first case, apologies for those of you who couldn't get a spot for the sold-out 2017 EM Cases course. We'll be thinking about maybe expanding the course a bit for the following year. Another great case-based course that I'll be speaking at is Whistler's Update in EM at the end of February with EM Cases guest experts Chris Hicks, Joel Yaffe, Eric Latofsky, Anil Chopra, Aaron Seyal, the brains behind the amazing Casted course, who, by the way, we're going to have on the show soon, uh, Sarah Gray, Jason Fisher, and Dave McKinnon. All right, let's get into DOACs and bleeding. Here's case number one. An 89-year-old man with a mechanical heart valve on warfarin comes in with a few hours of brisk epistaxis that isn't controlled with local pressure. You try all the usual maneuvers, but the bleeding continues. His INR comes back therapeutic at three. Dr. Himmel, how are you going to manage this patient? That's a great question. It was commonplace 10, 15 years ago for even minor bleeding to stop the anticoagulant. That's a bad move. So local problems have to be treated with local methods. So you always have to have a couple of tricks up your sleeve for oral bleeding and for epistaxis. If what you do doesn't work, consider a balloon. If a balloon doesn't work, consider a rapid rhino device. If that doesn't work, consider a beautiful drug to be used locally. It's called tranosamic acid. There's lots of stuff in the emergency literature suggesting that the use of tranosamic acid for oral bleeding is extremely effective in controlling the bleeding. And the original data was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1989. The uptake took 15 to 20 years. If all your tricks haven't worked for epistaxis, and I know epistaxis can be a big problem and can stop an emergency department flat out, consider using gel foam dipped in transamic acid. Consider using Surgicel dipped in transamic acid. These methods locally are very, very effective. Do not give it IV. There is, it's a rare situation where you cannot control these problems, even post-tonsillar bleeds. It's a rare situation where you cannot control these problems locally. And if you're really stuck, pick up a phone and get a consultant to come in, like an ENT physician to help you out. But do not stop anticoagulations for bleeding in relatively safe, accessible areas. Okay, yeah, this patient especially, you know, has a mechanical heart valve, and they're at especially high risk for thromboembolic events. Let's kind of do a few different situations here. Dr. Bell, what if the patient was on a DOAC for a subsegmental PE? They decided to treat it, they're on a DOAC. So same patient, uh, obviously wouldn't be a mechanical heart valve because they wouldn't be on a DOAC, but let's say they don't have a mechanical heart valve, they've had a subsegmental PE, they're on a DOAC, and now they're bleeding like stink through their nose. Well, that's a really interesting question as well, I think. I think it's important that your listeners realize that skipping one or two doses of a direct oral anticoagulant is akin to giving vitamin K to a patient treated with warfarin. Vitamin K takes around 6 to 12 hours to take effect, same period of time that it takes for a direct oral anticoagulant to wear off. So you stop a DOAC, it's like giving a patient on, on warfarin 
vitamin K. So that's wow. how. So that's so, a great comparison. So 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 that's how I would treat it. And so this patient has had a venous thrombosis. It's a it sounds like a, a very small event. You're describing a subsegmental PE. There's debate in the literature as to whether or not those need to be treated. And I think that's a whole separate conversation. You know, that patient, for example, could have a proximal DVT that wasn't diagnosed. And so I would still be quite hesitant about stopping um, an anticoagulant. And Dr. Ducatis, let's mix it up a little bit. Let's say this patient had a history of TIA associated with AFib and was on a DOAC. And again, bleeding like stink through the nose. What would you suggest in that situation? I'm in concert with my colleagues here that we will have to recognize that the anticoagulant per se isn't the cause of the bleed. The cause of the bleed is maybe some problems, you know, locally, whether it's epistaxis or hemorrhoidal bleeding. And to deal with that problem, if the case you just described in a patient who has a you know, atrial fib and has a CHAD score that's probably high because of their prior TIA uh, history, you don't want to be kind of routinely stopping anticoagulants when you can deal with the bleeding through measures that Walter has just described as an example. Uh, I've got to add, as an eMERGE doc, you've got to have confidence. Patients with epistaxis, sometimes post-tonsor bleeds, oral bleeding, if you call it some consultants, not all. The first thing I'm going to tell you is reverse the anticoagulant. A lot of people tell you that. Local problems, local solutions. That includes consultants, radiologists, if it's life-threatening bleeding, think very, very carefully before you stop an anticoagulant in patients who are of a high risk for a DVT, PE, or complication atrial fibrillation. They'll get very skilled with local treatments. And yes, I know it can take more time to treat epistaxis than to treat two PEs. It can take an hour and a half of your time. Get the skills, learn the tricks, pick up a telephone. All right. So Dr. Bell, this patient is 89 years old. How does age play into your choice of the dose of anticoagulation and, and bleeding risk? Well, that's a great question. Of course, uh, bleeding risk increases with age, and that's reflected in the HasBlood score. And it's not like when you turn a certain age, all of a sudden your bleed risk goes up. It's a, it's, it's a gradual curve that increases as we age. That being said, of course, as, as we've discussed, generally speaking, the risk of stroke, particularly the risk of a stroke that's life-altering or life-ending, is very high in patients who have underlying atrial fibrillation. And so usually, unless extreme, the risk of bleeding should not be um, convincing us to not anticoagulate a patient. We should be addressing reversible risk factors for bleeding. However, when we're initiating an anticoagulant, we need to make sure that we're initiating that anticoagulant at the proper dose. So, for example, in the 89-year-old patient, if dabigatran is to be used, it should certainly be dose reduced to 110 milligrams twice daily. Over the age of 80, dabigatran should be reduced. With rivaroxaban, we dose reduce on the basis of uh, creatinine clearance. And with apixaban, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's a combination of age, body weight, and creatinine, actually. Not creatinine clearance, but creatinine. And so this it's, it's a complicated algorithm to use. I can go through it if you want, but I don't think that would be as useful as just simply picking up your phone and downloading the Thrombosis Canada app, and you put in all the factors, and it tells you exactly what the proper dose should be for any given patient, and it gives you all three options. I agree. Unless you're a total nerd with a photographic memory, Download the app. That's how I see myself. I think Walter's been talking that's, about it. That's, that's, that's how I see myself, actually. I'm a total nerd on this kind of stuff. Great. Okay. So just I think the bottom line there is remember that if a patient's elderly, you really need to uh, consult your phone or a hematologist for dosing because it is very complicated with the different DOACs. Or a general internist. Or a general internist, exactly. Especially Ben Bell. Yeah. <laughs> So that case was sort of a low-risk bleed, even though this patient was bleeding a lot. Epistaxis and hemorrhoidal bleeding, those are examples of low-risk bleed. The next case is going to be a medium-risk bleed. So here we go. 
A 42-year-old woman who was diagnosed with a PE six months prior comes into your ED with a one-day history of hematochesia and no other symptoms. Her vital signs are normal. There's a small amount of bright red blood on rectal exam, and her hemoglobin comes back at 105. So low, but not super low. Dr. Himmel, does this patient need reversal of their apixaban? And in general, which patients require reversal of their anticoagulant? The ones that clearly need reversal are the people with life-threatening bleeding. Intracranial hemorrhaging or massive GI bleeding. The ones who might need reversal also include bleeding into a closed, very, very important space, the eye, the pericardium, the epidural space, the spinal cord. Yeah, those cases you've got to really consider reversing. It's a matter of upside and downside. Okay, so, so just to review there quickly, the patients who you definitely want to consider reversing are intracranial hemorrhage. Absolutely. Massive GI bleed. Yes. And any closed place like the pericardium, the eye, or the spinal cord. Yeah, areas where bleeding could change your life permanently for them in a bad way. Great. So that's generally who would require reversal for their anticoagulant. So what about this patient? This patient was diagnosed with a PE six months ago. Uh, they do have a GI bleed. Their hemoglobin's a little bit low, but their vitals are normal. They're not unstable. Would you consider reversing this patient? It depends, but probably not. But here's what I would consider. Would I consider sending them home? No. We know from experience, our 40, 56-year-old patients with minor GI bleeding go home all the time to come back for colonoscopy later. This is a person I might consider not sending home. Would I reverse this person? Absolutely. No. I'd have to risk benefit analysis. Was this your third PE? Were they advised to take anticoagulation for life? I probably would not reverse it. Have they been advised to stop the anticoagulation after three to six months anyways? I might consider stopping it there, but I certainly would not reverse it with a reversing agent. I would monitor the patient. I would consider having them admitted to the hospital referring to a consultant. I would repeat their hemoglobin, but I would not jump too quickly to stop to reverse them by any means. And if I was going to stop their anticoagulation for a dose or two, I'd have to be very comfortable it's a safe thing to do. Are the anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation with a low CHAD score? Have they had a DVTP more than six months ago? I might hold a few doses there or stop the medication. So it, it, you have to use clinical decision-making, but certainly this is not the person you simply say, keep taking your medication and go home and return if the bleeding gets heavier. That person you've got to be more careful with. Now, we just talked about some of the indications to reverse an anticoagulant, one of the massive GI bleeding. Let's say this patient was pouring bright red blood out of her rectum onto the floor of your resuscitation room. She's hemodynamically unstable. Your heart rate's gone up. What are the key elements of managing massive bleeding in DOACs in general? Remember the following. If you withhold a DOAC or reverse it, that doesn't stop bleeding. That just returns the patient to an unanticoagulated state. It doesn't stop the bleeding. You stop the bleeding by all, use all the usual methods, ABC, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure. Start two IVs. Life-threatening hemorrhaging, use your code omega or your massive transfusion protocol. You can give saline or lactate up front, but the treatment for massive bleeding is not fluids, it's blood. If you think the person's going to lose five units in the next three hours or 10 units in 24 hours, it's a massive transfusion protocol. It's blood, platelets, and plasma. It's the phone. That's what it really counts. Before you even consider reversal and, and reversal agents and so forth, start treating the patient for their GI bleeding. That's number one. Concurrently with that, you've got to then ask some very specific questions. Have they taken their pixaban in the last 12 hours or 14 hours or two hours ago? If they haven't taken a pill for 12 to 14 hours, you might not need a reversal agent at all. But you do have to treat them aggressively as a GI bleed. If they've taken the medication in the last hour or two or three hours, and this is a life-threatening bleed, and they're bleeding like crazy, 
Yes, then you have to do something about the apixaban as well as treating the bleeding the way you treat all life-threatening bleeds. So you stop the apixaban, goes without saying. Treat to massive bleeding, goes without saying. And in that case, you're pouring out blood, you're preventing death, you would consider a reversal agent. Before we get to the reversal agent, what about uh, activated charcoal? If Let's say they took that apixaban an hour ago. Perfectly reasonable if it's a... If they're awake and able to swallow charcoal and they've taken any of the direct oral anticoagulants in the last two or three hours, it's perfectly reasonable to give activated charcoal in a dose of about a gram per kilogram. Absolutely. Okay. So there's reversal agents, which we'll get to in a minute. Besides the reversal agents, let's talk about some other medications we can give to stop the bleeding or at least partially mitigate the effects of your DOAC. Well, you've got a couple of options, right? You you can use the specific reversal agents or the pseudo-specific reversal agents or a general agent like tranosamic acid. But, you know, you got to be careful how many of the things you want to combine. So I think you have to choose one rather than all of them. Before you give a specific chemical, a specific pharmacological agent to reverse the you've got to choose which one you're going to give because the evidence here is, is not great for combining them. The options include something like a prothrombin compass concentrate or transamic acid, and soon there'll be another agent available. But I wouldn't just be combining all three at the same time. Certainly, that's not the first go-to. The first go-to is aggressive intervention with help. Okay. So just to review there, local measures, just like in the epistaxis case, uh, you really want to call for help early for your interventional radiology or ICU, your GI. They need a scope quickly to go in there, find the bleeding source and stop it. Other local measures could be charcoal if they've taken a massive overdose intentionally or if they've taken their, their DOAC very recently. This isn't where you're going to have a restrictive blood transfusion policy. You're going to start giving blood right away, and you're probably going to be uh, activating your massive transfusion protocol. Now you're going to be considering medications to stop the effects of the DOAC specifically. There's, as you mentioned, tranexamic acid. There's four-factor PCC, like octoplex or bariplex. There's FIBA, and there's these new reversal agents. I can't even pronounce this. Aduris, how do you pronounce it, Dr. Bell? I dare you, Sizumab. Oh, I dare you. I like that. I dare you, Sizumab. And there's another reversal agent that isn't available yet in Canada, but will be probably soon. So just to keep this all organized, the treatment of massive bleeding on dabigatran is going to be slightly different from all the other DOACs. So let's start with dabigatran. Let's say you've got a patient, this patient, massive GI bleeding, and you've done all the non-pharmaceutical things already, and now you've got, uh, let's say you've got a vial of tranexamic acid, you've got your four-factor PCC, and you have your specific reversal agent, Praxbind or Idarizizumab. Uh, so for dabigatran, massive bleed, what do you do? So when we're thinking about reversing a patient who's on an anticoagulant, we need to think about either specific agents or general hemostatic agents. The anticoagulants, which we have reversal agents for in Canada, are warfarin, and the specific agent for that is the combination of vitamin K with PCC. The other agent that we can reverse in Canada right now is dabigatran, and the way we reverse that is with a drug called idarucizumab. I think of idarucizumab as kind of like digibind, only for dabigatran instead of for digoxin. It's a monoclonal antibody with a very high affinity for dabigatran, and it binds it uh, much more powerfully than dabigatran binds thrombin itself. And so it rapidly reverses the anticoagulant effect of dabigatran. Okay. So in terms of dabigatran, you're going to do all your usual measures that Dr. Himmel talked about. And in terms of reversing, if you have access to it, you're going to use idarucizumab and you're not going to use PCCs or tranexamic acid or FIBA. I don't think that those things would be indicated unless the patient has a concomitant coagulopathy that you're trying to correct with a PCC or FIBA, for example. Okay, got it. There's going to be some listeners out there who are interested in the evidence behind this new reversal agent. Dr. Ducatis, could you just get a little bit into the specifics of the studies and how good they are 
this new reversal agent for dabigatran, uh, what did the studies show exactly? Well, first of all, Anton, if we step back and we just look at the evidence in, in terms of managing patients who have anticoagulant-associated bleeds, there's very few high-quality studies. What I mean is randomized controlled trials. There are small trials looking at patients who are on warfarin and bleed, comparing PCC versus F fresh frozen plasma or FFP, and they used sort of surrogate outcomes like time to normalization of INR. In the context of dabigatran uh, or the other DOACs, we don't have a standard of care. So, you know, to do a randomized trial might be considered unethical. So the, the studies that have been done so far would be methodologically inferior because they're uncontrolled cohort studies, but I think are appropriate given the context. And their objective was to show that these reversal agents actually, as, as Ben and Walter mentioned, do the job of reversing the anticoagulant effect. And we do have evidence that that has happened based on the effect of these drugs on coagulation markers. To extend that and say, do these agents improve mortality and morbidity? We don't know that, which is why it's important to do these other things that Walter alluded to that will affect that. And then if we want to eliminate the, the anticoagulant effect from the clinical mix, we've got, at least for now, an agent that can do that for dabigatran, and hopefully in the near future, an agent that can do that for the oral tannin inhibitors, rivaroxaban and apixaban. It's pretty easy to give. You give it as a 2.5-gram dose back-to-back, or 5 grams in total, and it doesn't appear to have any prothrombotic effects. The additional evidence will come from when the study is completed because the results we have from last year are only the first 90 patients. We're waiting to see the results from 500 patients, and that should be available later this year. The study that Jim is referring to is the reverse AD trial. It was a it was a cohort study. As you said, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, but they looked at two groups of patients, one of whom were having uh, massive bleeding, who needed urgent reversal on that basis. And the clinical outcome there was time to cessation of bleeding. And the time to cessation of bleeding was something like 11 hours or something along those lines. Clinically, I don't know what that means. They stopped bleeding in 11 or 12 hours. Okay. That's interesting. I have nothing to compare it against. So to me, that didn't mean very much. What really meant something to me in the reverse AD trial was the other group of patients that they enrolled. And those were the patients who were undergoing emergent surgery. So patients, the majority of whom had therapeutic levels of dabigatran on board as measured by a, a, a lab level of dabigatran that we can't really get clinically. So they had therapeutic levels of dabigatran on board who needed urgent surgery. The vast majority of these patients had normal hemostasis as observed by the surgeon. So these patients with therapeutic levels of dabigatran undergoing emergent surgery had normal hemostasis. To me, that means something clinically, and to me, that means this drug works. So if you're an institution and your choice in life-threatening bleeding is either octoplex or bariplex or a cyclocapron, transamic acid, or FIBA, or Praxbind, the answer is obvious, Praxbind. And if you haven't got Praxbind in your hospital, and you're not going to use it very much because you don't see bleeding all that often from the bigotran, it's life-threatening, Praxbind is the best of those five drugs to use, according to evidence we have, which isn't great evidence. But that's the one to use. So the bottom line there is for massive bleeding on dabigatran, you're going to do all your usual measures, your massive transfusion protocols like we were talking about before. And for reversal, the go-to drug would be idarucizumab despite the weak evidence that we have for it. It's the best of what we got currently. Now we're going to go on to talking about reversing the effects of 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban and apixaban, which is very different than reversing dabigatran. Now there has been a new reversal agent called andexanet alpha recently developed, but it's not available in Canada yet, and the evidence for it ain't great. So to give you a deeper dive into the evidence for andexanet alpha, let's hand it over now to Justin. And now for EBM Bottom Line. Hello again. It's Justin Morgenstern back for another evidence-based medicine bottom line. 
This month, we're going to tackle one of those new reversal agents for the now less new anticoagulants, apixaban and rivaroxaban. This agent is called adexinate alpha. There are two papers that you should know about, and both are in the New England Journal of Medicine, so they must be big, groundbreaking trials, right? Well, let's have a look. The first one is by Siegel et al. It's actually two different trials in two different parts, but they all get into one paper. One trial was for apixaban, and the other trial was for rivaroxaban. I don't want to get too far into the details here. The apixaban trial had a total of 65 patients, and the rivaroxaban trial had 80 patients. The primary outcome was a laboratory measure called anti-factor 10A activity, and it did decrease by over 90%, but I have no idea what that actually means for your patient. Maybe the most interesting thing about this data is that even placebo decreased anti-factor 10A activity by up to 45%, so maybe you should be careful about giving saline to your patients on rivaroxaban. Okay, tiny trial, healthy volunteers, and a surrogate outcome. Let's move on to the next trial and see if it gives us something more to work with. The lead author of paper two is Connolly. This time, they performed a prospective open-label trial that included 67 patients with major bleeding on either apixaban or rivaroxaban. They gave all the patients adexinate alpha. There was no control group. Like in the previous trial, the lab values did get better on adexinate alpha. Unfortunately, I'm not sure the clinical values are quite as good. Only 80% of the patients had good or excellent hemostasis by 12 hours. And remember, rivaroxaban's half-life is 5 to 13 hours, so some of these patients will be getting better even without treatment. 9 of the 67 patients had poor or no hemostatic effect. In terms of the safety data, thrombotic events occurred in 18% of their patients and 15% of the population died. Now, there was no control group, so it's hard to make anything out of this data. Having 80% of the patients stop bleeding might be good, but that might be the exact same number as placebo. An 18% clot rate sounds really bad from a safety standpoint, but maybe you'd see the same number in a placebo group. So what do we do with this data? I understand that having a patient bleeding on one of these agents is very frustrating, and I desperately want one of these reversal agents to work. But these trials don't give us any information. They are tiny, and they either use surrogate outcomes or they're uncontrolled. And of course, all of this science, for lack of a better word, is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. I'll let you guess as to why these trials were included in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think that the best evidence-based bottom line that anyone can give you right now is that we simply have no idea if adexinet alpha will actually work in the real world. Personally, I don't think that any patient should be given this medicine outside of the context of a randomized clinical trial. I know, I want a reversal agent too, but we have to make sure it's actually helping our patients before we start using it. That's all for this month, and remember, all bleeding stops, eventually. So what do we do in the meantime? If, as Walter described, we got a patient on these 10A inhibitors and they have a intracranial bleed or another life-threatening GI bleed, we don't have this reversal agent available. So in lieu of this, what is recommended is the use of four-factor PCC, basically as a way of overwhelming the anticoagulant inhibitory effect of these drugs as a supplement. And I want to stress again the importance of supportive care and other nonspecific measures that have been mentioned. So four-factor PCC, that's octoplex or bariplex, is going to be your first-line go-to for patients who are bleeding massively on rivaroxaban or apixaban. And in the USA, I think it's called Kcentra. It's a different product. All right. Beyond that, Dr. Himmel, you've still got tranexamic acid, which is used, of course, in, in massive trauma, and you've got FIBA. When would you use these in addition to four-factor PCCs? Well, I'll be as definitive as anybody could possibly be. I don't think FIBA really plays a role with the reversal of anti-TENI agents. In theory, you could use it, but there is some 
evidence going back to 2011 with a circulation paper that octoplex or barioplex or acutanthinous states, if you're going to use a prothrombin compass concentrate, that's fine. I don't think we're going to be using FEVA with those drugs at the moment. Cranosamic acid as a last-ditch effort after you give them octoplex and they've had 10 or 15 units of blood and the gastroenterologist couldn't do anything and it's going on and on and on, I suppose then you could add transamic acid. But I think twice about using transamic acid and octoplex can occur currently at the same time. Okay, great. Just one more little nuance here. When it comes to four-factor PCCs, for warfarin reversal, we always must use vitamin K with the four-factor PCC. However, in this case of reversing apixaban or rivaroxaban, we're just using the four-factor PCC without the vitamin K. That's exactly right. Warfarin causes a vitamin K deficiency and secondarily causes factor deficiency. Rivaroxaban and apixaban simply uh, are direct inhibitors of factor 10A, and so all we're doing by giving four-factor PCC is flooding the coagulation cascade with more factor 10, hopefully being able to overwhelm the inhibitor which is present. There's no vitamin K deficiency, and so there's no role for giving vitamin K in that situation. And of course, if you're going to give the prothrombin compass concentrate, it's given on clinical assessment. It's not about the INR or the PTT, any of those things. It's a clinical opinion. I just want to highlight the point that just Walter just made, and that is, you know, when do we give these reversal agents? Uh, what criteria should we have? Well, we talked about, you know, intracranial bleeding. We talked about major hemorrhage. But really the decision about whether to give them or not should be a clinical one. You shouldn't wait to get a blood test result. You shouldn't sort of pin it on when the last dose of the drug was because a lot of times you don't know. So if you think it's a, it's, it might help the patient, go ahead and do it. It's a clinical decision, not predicated on a laboratory test or you know, some historical information which may or may not be reliable. Let's go on to our next case. An 82-year-old man with a pacemaker on rivaroxaban slips in the bathtub at home and hits his head on the edge of the tub. There's no loss of consciousness, no vomiting, no diffuse headache. His GCS is 15 in your ED, his head is scanned, and the CT comes back negative for a bleed. So Dr. Himmel We know that delayed bleeding on warfarin after a negative CT head can be as high as 16%. But we don't know yet with DOACs what the rate of bleeding is for a patient with a negative CT head who's just hit their head. What do you do after a normal CT head of an old person who hits their head while taking a DOAC? There's really no evidence as to what to do. So we can speculate based on the warfarin experience, realizing right off the bat that the risk of late bleeding is probably going to be less than with warfarin. So you've got to tell, educate the patient or his family. If you have a new worsening headache, if you're getting nausea, if you're getting any neurological symptom, you've got to come back and get another CT scan, period. We have to admit these patients. My starting point would be No. Unless it's a street person who's completely unreliable, demented, uh, then you have to sort of a, a, a make big major adjustments. So really good advice about any neurological symptom. Should you stop the oral anticoagulant? Well, there's head injuries and there's head injuries. There's a major bash with a big hematoma and there's a minor head injury. That may influence what you're going to do. Why are the, an, are the anticoagulant? This is for a DVT diagnosed two weeks ago or is it for AFib and they've been taking this stuff for four or five years? Those are all the questions. And you determine what the risk is. I would think the risk of a delayed bleed is probably less, but not zero. If the indication for the anticoagulant is great, leave them on it. If it's not great, maybe you can leave out a dose or two. But you need good advice to the patient and their relative, and you've got to make sure they've got some sort of follow-up and social support system. As they have less and less support systems, as the head injury is bigger and bigger, as the indication for the anticoagulant is, is larger and greater, you have to modify your approach. 
Let's say uh, this patient had a lot of bad luck and they were maintained on their rivaroxaban, returned to the ED two days later with a severe headache, vomiting, and a GCS of nine. Oops. Dr. Hamill, how are you going to manage this patient now? That's a great question. So I think the presumptive diagnosis there is intracranial hemorrhage, right? So the massive transfusion protocol is not going to work over here. Now you want to stop the bleeding because we know bleeding that's spontaneous on a normal patient is going to be less of a problem than bleeding that occurs when you're anticoagulated. So you've got to basically reverse the effect of the rivaroxaban. So do you do it before your CT scan or after? I don't know. If you have a lot of guts, you'll do it before your CT scan. What drug would you use? There are very few choices right now, but you're basically looking at prothrombin complex concentrates. What dose would you use? 50 units per kilogram with a maximum of about 2,000 units. If you're going to give the octoplex or bariplex for the CT scan, and you might want to do that in the right case, you might get 1,500 units of a prothrombin complex concentrate. Okay, so again, just like in our massive GI bleed, uh, for rivaroxaban and apixaban, the first-line medication is going to be four-factor PCC. And in terms of the dosing for intracranial bleed, it's 50 units per kilogram, but probably not more than about 2,000 units. Right. And if you're going to be giving it on spec before the CT? A bit less, 1,500 units. And 1,500 units. Got and this it. is all well-described on the website and uh, in the app. And, of course, general measures intubation, airway, breathing, circulation, check, monitor their pressure depending on the trials, the attack trial and the other hypertension trials, general patient management. Absolutely. Before we get on to the last case, I just want to remind you of our new free feature, Just the Nuggets where you receive the key points from the EM cases main episodes directly into your email inbox. Knowledge comes in little packets. So this is how it works. About one week after a main episode comes out, we'll email you a couple of nuggets of knowledge about that episode every two days for a total of about four or five with a little quiz at the end just to reinforce your learning. That way, each email only takes a couple of minutes to read while you're waiting in line for coffee or taking a break on shift. Over about 10 days, you'll have learned all the key points from the podcast to help solidify your knowledge. So the benefits to you are that after listening to the podcast and then a week later reviewing the key points over a few days, your chances of remembering just about every important point from the podcast will skyrocket. Please note, though, that if you've already signed up for the EM Cases newsletter, you'll receive a special email from us to sign up for the Nuggets. If you're not already signed up for the EM Cases newsletter and you want to get the Nuggets and or the newsletter, just go to the EM Cases newsletter page on the website. And now on to the last case where we're going to talk about patients who are on DOAX who you need to do an invasive procedure on in the ED. Patient on apixaban post surgery for a femur fracture comes in with rigors, headache, and neck stiffness. He's got jolt accentuation, a rigid neck, and you think he actually might have the words bacterial meningitis written on his forehead. You order up two grams of cetriaxone and a gram of vancomycin, and as you're getting set up for the LP, you pause because your resident asks you if it's okay to do the LP if the patient is on apixaban. So, Dr. Himmel. As you had alluded to before, the high-risk bleeding are those that are in enclosed spaces. And this patient getting an LP, that's an enclosed space. So how do you deal with this? This patient has a high risk of bleeding. If you do an LP, uh, they need the LP because you highly suspect they have meningitis. How do you approach this situation? Well, I'll answer your specific question, then I'll give you a general answer. The answer is don't do the LP, period. Period. End the discussion. There are Plavix and aspirin. They're on anticoagulation. Just treat the meningitis. You can worry about the LP at some later date, which may mean 24 or 48 hours later. That's the basic answer. Now, you have to look at every procedure. Is it high risk or low risk? Is it reversible or not? What's the most important thing in reversible procedures, like a thoracentesis or a paracentesis? The skill of the operator. 
If you're not skilled, get somebody more skilled. In this day and age, if you're good with ultrasound and you're more skilled, that's the person to get. If you're not skilled, the skilled operator is an extremely important predictor in low-risk procedures. But high-risk procedures on anticoagulation, and I would consider doing LP1 of them, do not do it, period. Okay, so let's just go over what's considered high-risk and low-risk. So what, what, about a, what about a central line? Is that high-risk or low-risk? There's two kinds of central lines, the ones you can compress and the ones you can't. So what's a low-risk procedure in a skilled operator? Internal jugular cannulation with ultrasound is considered low-risk with a skilled operator. Femoral vein cannulation with ultrasound, low-risk with a skilled operator. Subclavian line, that is not low-risk. You can't compress it. So unless you're the most skilled person in the world, I wouldn't do it. You cannot compress that area. Baby, don't you do it. Now let's talk about a paracentesis with an ultrasound. Then you're really skilled. Probably low risk. A thoracentesis, and you're really skilled with ultrasound machine. You can go ahead and do it. You don't have to reverse anything. But the skill of the operator is extremely important. But certainly I would say a subclavian artery for most people is out, and an LP is out. Okay. So paracentesis, thoracentesis, central lines that aren't subclavian, those are not high risk. You can consider doing them in a patient on a DOAC. You just got to make sure that you have a skilled operator. A skilled operator. Absolutely. We, we know from Jenny Callum's studies on procedures and patients on warfarin, INRs of three and four and five, the biggest predictor of bleeding was not the INR. The biggest predictor of bleeding was the skill of the operator. Okay. Now, Dr. Ducatis, I understand that you've written the guidelines on periprocedural anticoagulation and lots of articles on this topic. For those patients who are going to go to the OR from the emergency department, you know, whether they've got appendicitis and they need to go to the OR, whether uh, they've got a femur fracture and they need to go to the OR or a hip fracture, what are some of the things that we need to consider as emergency doctors when we have a patient on a DOAC and they're going to be going for surgery, say, in the next 24 hours? Yeah, that's a very good question, Anton. I think the key decision is, does that patient need to go to the OR now? By that, I mean, you know, within six hours, they've got a a perforated viscous. Or can they wait 24 to 48 hours not ideally, but if let's say they have a, a, a below knee fracture or a hip fracture and they need an ORIF, look, if they need to go to the ORR right now, and unless you have a very good idea when their last dose of the DOAC is, these these drugs have half-lives of between 8 to 12 hours on average. So if you do the math, you need to wait you know, a day or longer before the drug gets out of the system. That's not going to work for an urgent surgery. You need to consider reversing it with either PCC or a specific reversal agent. In the other situation, you, if you can wait a little bit longer uh, and it's clinically appropriate, then you would obviate the need for using a, a reversal agent uh, or um, a PCC. What you don't want to see happening with these new agents, reversal agents, is 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 having them used as an expediency factor. And by that I mean, you know, it it, it allows that patient to to have the procedure earlier. The decision is. When do they go, need to go to the R? It's a clinical decision, and that should anchor whether you, or not you use a reversal agent, uh, whether it's PCC or uh, a specific agent. So I completely agree with what Jim has said there. And, and just to expand on it just a, just a tiny little bit, the literature in this area is absolutely dismal. There really is very minimal literature guiding us how to how to manage these patients. Generally speaking, these are clinical decisions that are made patient by patient. Before we hear about the future of DOAC research from Dr. Dekettis, it's time to do the monster review. First, there are three categories of illness we need to think about in terms of bleeding risk in patients taking DOACs. Low risk, where you can easily access the bleeding site to stop the bleeding, like epistaxis or hemorrhoidal bleeding. Moderate risk, like a stable GI bleed, and high risk, ICH, an unstable GI bleed, and bleeding into an enclosed space, intraocular, pericardial, or spinal epidural. When approaching the low-risk bleeding patient on a DOAC, the mantra is, 
Local problems should be treated with local solutions. And aside from your usual local maneuvers to stop epistaxis that we discussed in episode 38 on ENT emergencies, consider local applied tranexamic acid. Now let's talk about the indications for consideration of reversing the anticoagulant effect of DOAX. They are fivefold. Five indications. Number one, ICH. Number two, hemodynamically unstable GI bleed not controlled by endoscopy or interventional radiology in a timely manner. Number three, bleeding into an enclosed space. Number four, failure of local measures with ongoing severe bleeding. So if our epistaxis patient just kept on bleeding like crazy despite everything that we tried to do. And the last indication for consideration of reversing the anticoagulant effects of DOAX would be when emergency surgery is required for something like aortic dissection or aneurysm. Now, how do you manage non-traumatic hemorrhagic shock in patients taking DOAX, like a massive GI bleed, for example? Well, the most important principle to remember in the management of hemodynamically unstable patients who are bleeding and taking DOAX is that reversing or withholding a DOAX does not stop bleeding, but rather it simply returns the patient to an unanticoagulated state. They're still bleeding. It's therefore imperative that resuscitative measures to stop the bleeding are taken as a priority over reversing the DOAC. So first, be sure to maintain a good urine output because DOACs are excreted renally. Use all the usual local measures and call for help early, interventional radiology, ICU, hematology, etc., Now, you can give charcoal if the patient is alert in protecting their airway and if they've taken a recent dose of their DOAC. And remember that this is not the time to get too obsessed with a restrictive policy for red cell transfusion. If your patient is bleeding more than five units over three hours with ongoing bleeding, you need to begin your institutional massive transfusion protocol. And don't forget the cryoprecipitate after 10 units of blood if the fibrinogen is low. Now, once you've done all your usual things that you do so well to stop bleeding in general, then it's time to consider reversing the DOAC. And you need to think of dabigatran and the 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban and apixaban, in separate categories. So first, dabigatran. Dabigatran can be reversed by the only reversal agent that we have, idarucizumab, that has been shown to reverse bleeding parameters, but... Real clinical outcomes and safety data are yet to be determined, and it's expensive, $3,500 U.S. Anyhow, if you're going to use it, it's idarucizumab, 5 milligrams IV, over 15 minutes. So that's dabigatran. Now, for the 10A inhibitors, apixaban and rivaroxaban, there is a reversal agent called andexanet alpha, but it's not available in Canada, and in Justin's analysis of the literature, the evidence for its effectiveness is lacking big time. So we're left with our first-line agent for reversing 10A inhibitors, and that's four-factor PCC. That's Kcentra in the U.S. and Octoplex or Bariplex in Canada at 50 units per kilogram to a maximum of 2,000 units. Or if you're brave enough to give it before you've confirmed an ICH on CT, give 1,500 units. If your factor 4 PCC doesn't seem to be working, your second-line agent is IV tranexamic acid, and it's 1 gram over 10 minutes, followed by 1 gram over the next 8 hours. Now, for patients taking DOAX, whom you need to do a procedure on, the approach stems from whether or not the procedure is low-risk or high-risk. So low-risk procedures include paracentesis, thoracentesis, a non-subclavian central line. For these, as long as the operator is skilled, you don't need to stop or reverse the DOAC. Now, for high-risk procedures, like an LP or a subclavian line, the procedure needs to be delayed while the DOAC has completely worn off, like 24 hours or so. And as for patients needing to go for emergency surgery, reverse them, but only if it's a true emergency. Reversal should not be used for patients who need to go to the OR non-emergently just to speed up the time to surgery. And finally, remember that dose reductions need to be made for DOAC stroke prevention in AFib for patients who are older, for patients who have a high creatinine, for patients who have extremes of weight. But it's complicated. So use an app like the Thrombosis Canada app. All right, now to wrap up this episode, 
let's hear from Dr. Dekedis on the future of DOAC research. So Dr. Dekedis, what do you see in the near future for the next five, 10 years down the line in terms of how we manage thromboembolic disease and use anticoagulants? Well, Anton, there's going to be uh, one or more new reversal agents. There will probably be new targets for anticoagulants. But I think more pertinent for the ER physician is that we've accumulated a lot of good evidence. Now the next step is to make sure that we're implementing it well. So this is knowledge translation. And the ER is sort of the focus of a lot of research of are we implementing this evidence? Are we diagnosing uh, patients with suspected DVT or PE appropriately? Are we initiating treatment? And we can do that in the ER that obviates hospitalization for the vast majority of patients with both VTE and newly diagnosed AF. So implementing the evidence that we've accumulated, and to me, in my view, the ER will be a focal point for that. And I think research will address how well we're doing. I suspect that that's at least partly why you schlepped all the way from Hamilton to our studio here at EM Cases to be part of this podcast. Toronto's my my hometown. I, I grew up a block away from here. I'm a little sad about the Blue Jays, but oh well, he can't have everything. All right. And uh, Dr. Himmel and Dr. Bell, if you could predict the future when it comes to thromboembolic disease and anticoagulants, anything to add? I think the role of the emergency physician and the role of the internist working in the emergency department is going to get more and more and more important. This is really an area to master. Uh, there's nothing like knowledge. It's beautiful. And the responsibility is falling more and more in our hands to initiate a treatment, to initiate diagnosis, and to be a patient advocate and to arrange for follow-up. Yeah, it's totally amazing. You know, for about 30 or 40 years, I've heard the same complaint. We have to get a drug that's better than warfarin. Well, guess what? We have that now. Now the complaint is, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, in preparing for this podcast, I realized that this is an incredibly complex topic. And I hope that this podcast has given the listeners a flavor of what to do in these very difficult situations, when to ask for help, um, and to just gain a, a deeper understanding of how to use these medications. Uh, so with that, I thank you very much, Dr. Bell, Dr. Ducatis, and Dr. Himmel for joining me. I appreciate your time and your effort in coming to help with some knowledge translation. It's been a pleasure, and I'm very, very grateful to Dr. Bell and Dr. Ducatis. These guys are fantastic experts. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor. It's been an honor to be here, I must say, and to, and to share the room with such great minds. Thank you, everyone. It's, it's my privilege to be part of this. Thank you.